Right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you today. It is Budget Day in Ottawa. Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland is set to table Canada's new budget at 1 p.m. this afternoon. Housing expected to be a focus of this budget. First-time home buyers getting some help. It will include a tax-free savings account. For first-time home buyers under age 40, it will allow people to save up to $40,000 tax-free to help purchase a first home. We're watching closely for that in the budget today. Also in the budget, a foreign buyer's ban. Multiple news outlets out of Ottawa reporting this now. It will be in the budget today. A two-year ban on foreign property purchases. Will that make housing any more affordable? This is something that Justin Trudeau talked about in the last federal election. Here he is making a campaign stop in British Columbia and talking about foreign housing speculators. Have a listen to this, Trudeau here. Owning a house should be a realistic life goal. It's where you set down roots, where you raise a family, where you grow old. But young people hoping to buy their first home, just like their parents did a generation ago, are facing a tough housing market. We know a lot of people are still struggling, especially in places like Victoria or Vancouver, where the cost of housing has skyrocketed, due in part to housing speculation by foreign owners. Okay, that's uh, Justin Trudeau in the last federal election, a foreign buyer's ban. Could it be coming in the budget this afternoon? Sure looks like it. Let's discuss now with my guests, Paul Sullivan. Paul is a partner at Ryan. It's a global firm of tax and real estate specialists. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Randeep Sarai on the line, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre, and I'm pleased to welcome Randeep back. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Okay, Randeep, I do not expect you to confirm what is in the budget coming up this afternoon, but let's talk generally about a foreign buyer's ban. This is something that the Liberals had promised in the past. Why do you think that's a good idea? Uh, look, we've promised this. We've seen in uh, particular in British Columbia when uh, Premier Christy Clark did a study, I think, uh, back in 2012 or 2013 based on land title that over almost a billion dollars a year, 900 plus million uh, to two billion a year was coming in to, uh, from offshore buying homes just in the metro Vancouver, uh, greater Vancouver region. Uh, since then, I think Canadians have, and particularly British Columbians, have, have uh, found that uh, uh, very dangerous, uh, very uh, concerning, especially when they were leaving them empty and and so therefore there's been that growing concern whether the provincial governments put a foreign buyer's tax a vacancy tax it was been our promise uh, in our platform that we will ban foreign ownership and I think currently uh, even though the percentage so a lot of those measures are working uh, the percentage I think was down to one one and a half percent of some of the home ownerships uh, uh, in lower mainland now that are, are bought by uh, uh, foreign owners but I think the, the fear is when, when there's global uncertainty on the borders of Europe uh, uh, in other places around the world, but Vancouver and Canada itself will become a haven again for people to come and park their money or or, or buy a second home, and, and we don't want okay. that, especially when it's displacing our local uh, residents. Okay, Paul Sullivan, a foreign buyer's ban. Will it make any difference? Well, you know, we're talking about such a small portion of the market. You know, in 2021, there was 560 homes purchased by uh, foreign buyers, according to the BC government PTT database, 2020, there's 837 homes. You know, we're talking about one to 1.5% of the marketplace. 
you know, when when the liberal provincial liberals brought in the foreign foreign buyers tax in 2014-15, we were up at nine percent foreign buyers. We're we're yeah. down at a level that that it's not going to make any significant difference. Yeah, it seems like Randeep, if you could comment on that, it seems like the horses have already left the barn here. Maybe a foreign buyers ban would have been a good thing like 10, 15 years ago. Look, these are all measures that are working, and I think they're the. If you see it from 2014, 15, that uh, whether it's provincial measures, whether it's the city measures and vacancy taxes, or whether it's uh, now federal measures, and we also have to prevent it for the future too. It's not just for the current situation, and uh, and I also agree with uh, with your guests that, that supply is a big issue, and we'll be hopefully doing more efforts into increasing supply. But you can't just leave one tool behind. You have to use all the tools in the tool chest. Uh, to to support Canadians being able to buy their first home, okay, uh, buy okay. their homes and stay in them. Okay, I'm wondering if there also might be some loopholes here for foreign buyers too. Like Paul Sullivan, we're told that there will be exceptions where foreign foreign purchases will be allowed, notably for students. So students in Canada would be allowed to buy a home. Like, isn't that one of the more common workarounds? Like, I'm just wondering if, if there are loopholes here that if a foreign buyer really wants to buy a place in Vancouver, can they find a way through this ban? Uh, I mean, there seems little doubt. I mean, for, foreign students, uh, recreational properties, I mean, you can see it all over the place. I think we should also reflect on New Zealand. You know, they're the only other country that put a foreign buyer ban in 2018, and they're at 2.9% foreign purchasers. And studies subsequently have showed that it made no difference to home home prices. So, you know, if we if we look around the world, I think we would find that this is not going to be the tool that does any difference. Randy, what do you say to that? Because the New Zealand model is one that's that's uh, cited frequently. Your thoughts? I'm sure. Look, the housing uh, issue is compounded by various reasons. I mean, uh, it's our it's our, our, our location. It's uh, the fact that people want to be in Canada. Um, it, it, there's a generational change that's happening. There's a lot of immigration that's happening. There's a lot of factors that cause the houses. We're not creating as many houses. That's the biggest problem as the amount of people that we have. We, we have a deficit of housing. Uh, but this is something that Canadians have asked for. And uh, it was our election promise. And then hopefully we will be delivering on that promise. So okay. it's, it's definitely something people have asked for. Talking about a foreign buyer's ban in real estate coming in the federal budget this afternoon, my guests are Paul Sullivan and Randy Psarai. Uh Paul, you mentioned that you don't think it's going to make a big difference, but Randeep says that Canadians have asked for it. If you take a look at some of the opinion polling on this, I, I looked at one this morning, it showed 78% of Canadians would support a foreign buyer's ban. Your thoughts? Yeah, and 80% of Canadians uh, aren't satisfied with what government's doing on affordable housing. So <clears throat> we have a real conflict here. We've got a net migration coming into British Columbia of 101,000 people, the highest record since 1961. 67,000 of those people coming to BC are foreigners. You know, what are, what are we doing here? We're saying you can't, you can't buy, but you can rent. Well, there's nowhere to rent. So help God bless the people in the rental market. This is going to be a disaster for them. You know, I also want to make it real clear, this market is already softening. It's just like when the foreign buyers tax came in, we were in a softening market. And government's going to take claim that they, they changed the direction of the market. It's already changing. This is too late. So this is all about what interest is, rates. What is ca- yeah, you just anticipated what I was going to say there. Is it rising interest rates are having Im- an impact there? 100%. I mean, the affordability uh, level is directly related to interest rates. It's really the only thing beyond supply that's going to cause a change in the marketplace. Like, like speaking, of, supply. 
Speaking of supply, we've seen a lot of demand side answers here from government, whether it's taxes or buyer bans. What about building more stuff, get more houses on the market that people can afford to buy? Randeep Sarai, what is the government sure, doing about that? I mean, that, that that's where it's one of our election platform issues, which is to create more um, housing uh, uh, housing spaces uh, and exciting city cities to uh, uh, to not be nimbyism, to create higher density per uh, square kilometer, uh, to give more units. And I'm optimistic that we'll have something in the budget of that, if not in this one and the next one. Uh, these are incentives that will We've created a $70 billion plus national housing strategy, which is creating more affordable housing, more rental housing, more rapid housing. Uh, and, and, the, uh, and the fruits in the, in the, in the, in the pipeline, you see the applications made, the houses being made. They take, obviously, multifamily houses take four to five years to build, uh, but they're in the pipeline and they are working. And you see private capital actually uh, taking opportunity on that and building more rental units as well. Okay, we do expect to see that in the budget this afternoon as well. Paul Sullivan, there are reports that there could be billions in this budget to help local municipal governments speed up approvals of of new new home building, something we've discussed in the past. You've got to like the sound of that, right? Yeah, I mean, 100%. We've got to do what we can here. I mean, right now, BC has the lowest housing delivery of all the G7 countries. We're, we're, we're at the lowest rate per thousand residents of, in the world, effectively. You know, $4 billion to speed up the delivery of housing. My goodness, is that ever important? Right now, uh, a report came out this week that delays in housing delivery is costing $216,000 per unit due to delays in costs and holding costs. So these are big numbers that are directly a result of not delivering housing quickly. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking housing on the show today, the federal budget expected to have a major focus this afternoon in Ottawa. Here in B.C., the housing crunch just as bad as ever with home prices skyrocketing beyond the reach of many. That includes B.C. students, university and college students struggling in this economy, in this housing market, difficult to find a place to rent. Rents are going up. I'll talk in a moment to a UVic student who's living out of his van First, though, have a listen to this report now from Global News about students struggling at UBC, even using the local food bank to get by. Have a listen. Enrollment is up for this staple at the University of British Columbia, and that's not a good thing. But as far as programs go at the school, there are few more important. This is the food bank. Hunger on campus is very real, and it's on track to see over 1,000 visits this year. We have about six or 700 clients in our database. The numbers seem to always be increasing. Across the country, poverty and homelessness among post-secondary students is on the rise. Making ends meet has never been harder. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Daniel Drury. Daniel is a student at the University of Victoria, and he's living out of his van recently. Hey, Daniel, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Daniel, tell me about your van. you living in there full-time right now? Uh, yeah, more or less. Yeah, it's a converted camper van, uh, 1994 Ford Econoline. Where do you park it? On campus? Yeah, so during the day from about uh, 7.30 a.m. until pretty late at night, like 11 p.m. when the library closes, um, I'm, on, I'm on campus, yeah. Yeah, are you allowed to park there overnight? Uh, no, I'm not allowed to park here overnight. Okay, where do you park your van at night? Uh, I just drive off campus and then um, into the like residential neighborhoods nearby, 
the university here. Um, oh. I try and look for a spot like where it's not right outside of someone's house because I don't want to be a nuisance to the residents. Yeah. Why did you? Why are you living out of a van? Uh, so for me, it was kind of a something I'd been interested in doing for quite some time, like several years. It, I'd kind of toyed with the idea, and then when um, it w- it turned out that it was going to be so difficult to find housing this year, that's when I decided to go for it, just kind of like as a smart economical decision to save some money. Yeah. Did you find a? Pl- did you, you tried to find a place to rent though, right? Yeah, I had. A, I definitely dipped my toe into the market and uh, and had a look around, but the prices had gone up so significantly just since um, between when I moved out of my basement suite in May of 2021 over the course of the summer um, and then going into September 2021 when I needed to come back to Victoria, the prices had gone up astronomically. So uh, that kind of put me off. Yeah, speaking of Daniel Drury, is a University of Victoria student who's been uh, priced out of the local housing market living out of his van. What's it like to live out of your van there? Uh, it's definitely a mixed bag. Uh, it's been pretty challenging, especially the first month. There was a lot to learn. Um, but it's it's been rewarding in other ways. And, uh, you know, I think I'm at a good time in my life to challenge myself like this. So, um, yeah, it hasn't all been bad for sure. Uh, and I've been able to do some cool camping trips and stuff like that. It's been the, It's been the subject of some of my research papers. I've been able to integrate my van into like van lifestyle into those research papers, which has been cool. Um, but yeah, it, it is challenging for sure too. Oh, is, where do you, if you have, where do you have to, what do you do if you have to go to the bathroom? Uh, well, I'm, as I'm on campus for most of the day, that's not too much of an issue. I'm really just going off campus to sleep at night. Um, yeah. so I can use the campus facilities during the day. Yeah. What about, can you go into the local, the gym there and get a shower or whatever? Yeah. So, um, for all UVic students, the McKinnon gym uh, facilities are free to use. Uh, yeah. There's two gyms at UVic. So there's a paid gym membership at the newer gym, which is CARSA. And then the McKinnon gym is free. What do you? Uh, what do your fellow students t- tell you when they hear you're living out of your van? And are, are a lot of them also struggling to find an affordable place to rent? Yes, it's a story I've heard uh, time and time again. And... Um, I know that a lot. I, I've been surprised to hear just how many people are struggling to find places to rent, and <clears throat> uh, just how many other people are living out of their vehicles, and wow. many of them are doing it involuntarily. Oh, okay. So you know other students who are also doing the same thing as you, living out of a vehicle. Exactly. Yeah. And, wow. and like for me, it was like more of a choice. I I kind of did this because I saw how it wasn't so much that I got priced out of the market than I got put off by the prices and didn't want to have to put up that sort of money. So I decided to do this more of like a a smart economical choice to challenge myself. But I know that for a lot of these people who are living out of their vehicles, that's not the case. And they've been fully priced out of the market and and can't afford housing. What kind of vehicles are some of your friends living out of? Do they all have a a van like you or are they living in more cramped quarters? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. I, I don't know all of these people personally. I've, heard about them either through other people or through um facebook pages so i haven't necessarily met all of the other people who are living out of their vehicles but i believe it's a mix of other vans and just regular vehicles what do you think could be done to improve the situation like is do you find that the situation in victoria for you vic students is it a case of a shortage of 
places to rent or the or the are there places available, but the rents are just too high, or is it a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's a shortage, which is is driving up the prices. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily have one uh, single solution for that, but uh, it's definitely something that the uh, government needs to take a look at, and I think uh, it needs to be addressed for sure. Because I think it harms the reputation of the universities if uh, the best universities in BC are in big cities, but then the prices in these cities are uh, making it more and more difficult for people from uh, a diverse range of socioeconomic statuses to go and study there. Yeah, how much are the rents these days? When you were looking around trying to find a place to rent, what kind of rents were you being uh, quoted? Um, so it depends if you're looking for a place where you have roommates or not. If you're looking for a single bedroom uh, suite that's gonna you're gonna have all to yourself, I think. You'd be lucky to find anything for less than sixteen or seventeen hundred bucks um, in Victoria right now, and then uh, depending on how many roommates you can find, you can obviously get better deals. I do know, still know people who are paying like only five hundred bucks for a room in a shared house, but um, it can be hard to to find vacancies in those houses. Like a lot of people have got their little core group that they're going to see out the four years of their degree with, and they're not looking for too much. Uh, in the way of new roommates, so it can be difficult to find like good deals like that. But they they are out there if you if you can network well enough. Speaking of Daniel Drury, he's a U- University of Victoria student living out of his van. How much does it cost you to live out of your van? Um, I I, I haven't done like a monthly breakdown, but it's definitely not as costly as living as paying rent. No. Like I just pay seventy five bucks a month for the parking pass. Um, the van I'm driving is. Uh, a little more expensive on gas than the vehicle I had before I moved into the van. Um, so that's an extra cost. And then um, the fact that it's a little more difficult to store food here and, and cook food for myself means that I do end up eating uh, out more, like getting takeout food, which which is more expensive, obviously, than um, cooking at home. So there are some other hidden expenses to, to living in a vehicle, but overall I am yeah. saving money. Okay, so 75 bucks a month for a daytime campus parking permit, and then you park your van off campus overnight. Like, you typically will look around, try to find a residential side street to park the van yeah, exactly. overnight. Does anyone ever, you get any grief from anybody in the neighborhood, come out and say, hey, kid, what are you doing here parking here and sleeping here at night? <laughs> uh, no, fortunately, okay. I haven't been given grief. Um, I think that's partly because I've been pretty careful about doing my very, very best not to bother the residents. I do arrive um, on the side streets pretty late at night, like after most people, I assume, have drawn their blinds for the night and have gone to bed. And then I try and wake up and, and get off their, get off their street before yeah. they would get up so, so that they don't really have to notice that I've even been there in the first place. Um, and obviously, I'm not dumping any waste, you know, out in front of their houses or or causing any problems like that. Like yeah, you're not, you're, not par- you're not partying in the van. No, 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 no Okay, not. okay. Yeah. Uh, so what uh, what are you studying at UVic? Uh, I'm an economics student. Okay, that's uh, that's appropriate. Uh, yeah. These days, how how much how many more years you got to go in your degree? Uh, just one more. One more. Just okay, one more so you're going to live in the van the rest of this one school year, and then you're and then you're moving on, I guess. Uh, yeah, like I, I've got this, well, we've just coming to the end of the academic year here now, and then right. I've got one more year next okay. year. Um, 
But I don't know whether I'm going to be living in the van next year because I might be going on a on an exchange uh, okay. to to England, actually. But yeah, we'll All see. Right. Daniel, thanks for sharing your story today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about housing on the show today. We have a federal budget coming down in about two hours from now, expected to have a major housing component. The housing affordability crisis hitting a lot of people right now. How can we make this better? Well, how about this idea now? A mansion tax. A mansion tax. You target the most expensive and valuable properties in Vancouver. Hit the owners with a mansion tax, then use the money to build affordable housing. Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson. She supports this idea. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Okay, let's talk about your mansion tax. How would this work? Well, the, the first thing that has to happen is the province has to give the city the authority to do it. So right now, we only have the city only has two sources of revenue fees like swimming pool fields fees or developer fees and property tax and according to the charter which is basically the law we can only charge one rate of property tax so if you have a $400,000 condo or if you have a 70 million dollar mansion you pay the same rate of tax unlike income tax, where you have a lower rate for low-income people and a higher rate for rich people. So this would just ask the province to give the city that power. And then the second part of the motion is to ask our staff to report back on how we could actually use that to help end homelessness. Okay, it's a very catchy name for this idea, a mansion tax. What? How do you define that? Like, what is a mansion? Well... I mean, this motion doesn't restrict any kind of definition. But when we, at COPE, when we crunched the numbers, we figured that if you put in an extra tax of 1% on homes that were worth more than $5 million, and an extra tax of 2% on homes that were worth more than $10 million, we could get about $225 million a year that we could be investing in anything, right? But in my dreams, I'd like to invest it in housing for people who are homeless. Okay, so this would be a tax that would kick, you know, under that model you just described, kick in at a home $5 million or more. So for people who are listening to this right now saying like, oh my God, here they come, they're going to tax the equity on my home. Like, what would you say to them? You're saying, like, relax. We're only going after the most the most expensive homes. Like, most people would not hit be hit with this tax, correct? Yeah, there's with that model, it would be less than five thousand people in the city. Five thousand. Okay. So five. So you know, you'd be going after a guy like Chip Wilson over there on Point Grey Road, right? Like the Who, founder. Me? <laughs> well, I mean, the tax people would, right? Like his. The, the latest evaluation on his place over there, the founder of Lululemon, $73 million house, mansion. Now, that's a mansion for sure. So that would be like the type of house you would tax, correct? Yeah, and he made something over $2 billion, I think, just in the pandemic. So he can afford it, right? He can, okay. He can afford it. All right. So what do you say to people, Gene, who are listening to this going like, oh, no, here we go. This is like thin edge of the wedge. They'll say they're going to go after the the billionaires first, but then they're going to come after the other homeowners next. How would you reassure people on that? Well, it's like any other tax. Um, we need the city 
have 8 to 10% of the revenue, and we have 60% of the infrastructure to fund. So, I mean, you could say that to any other level of government, but the thing is, the city doesn't have a fair way to tax, and we need a fair way so that we can have a higher rate for people who have a lot of property wealth and a lower rate for people that don't have a lot of property wealth. Right, and how is it fair if someone buys a home and it goes up in value through no fault of their own, you know, so now they're sitting on this this property that's worth a ton of money, and a lot of people are looking at them saying, well, you won the lottery, we're going to come and get you and tax you. But people might say, well, look, that's not my fault, my house went up in value. What do you say to them? Well, another way of looking at it would be to say that it, it wasn't due to any work by them, it was just due to property appreciation. And shouldn't society capture some of the value of property appreciation for others who don't have the luxury of owning property? Yeah. Speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson about her proposed mansion tax in the city of Vancouver. So you mentioned that this would require action from the provincial government, right? Like the city council can't do this right now. You have to get authority from the province? Right. Yeah. And if you talk to them about it? Nope. What Just going to ask them for it. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think they'll say to you? I think they'll probably say no, but the first step in getting what we need is to ask for it. And this hasn't been asked for yet, so I think we need to start that ball rolling. Yeah. How, how pressing is the need, from, from your perspective as a city councillor, for affordable housing in this city? How, how, much of a, uh, how urgent is that right now? It's overwhelming. We have over 2,000 people who are homeless. Um, this city... Uh, did us, uh, we got a memo in December, I think it was, that the province had downloaded about $300 million worth of uh, costs onto the city in the previous year. And the city just doesn't have the ability to pay for everything that's needed. So it's not only just people who are homeless, it's lower income renters, uh, most of the private sector, the well, virtually none of the private sector housing that's being built can be afforded by people that are earning under 75000 The uh, median renter household income is 50000 So the rental housing that's being, being built isn't serving the people that need it the most. And we desperately need an injection of money to build more social and co-op housing. And right. this would be one way of getting it. Right, and your proposal for this mansion tax is going in front of city council in the form of a motion, right? When are you doing that? The motion will be introduced on the 12th Tuesday, next Tuesday, and right. if there's speakers, it'll probably be voted on the next day. And are you getting any support from your fellow councillors for this idea? Yeah, I have from uh, some of them, yes. Okay. okay, well, we're following it. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Our- All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about looking for a new job in this economy right now. Unemployment is low. Lots of jobs appear to be available out there. We talked earlier on the show today about the worker shortage. Lots of companies finding it difficult to fill positions. Okay, let's talk about the campaign for wage transparency now. What does that mean? Well, it means if you respond to a want ad for a job, Uh, Maybe you should be told up front how much the job actually pays. That doesn't always happen. Let's discuss now with my guest, Amanda Hudson. Amanda is the founder of the HR consultancy company, A Modern Way to Work. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Amanda. 
Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Would you say right now that it's kind of a, a worker's market out there? Like, it seems like empl- uh, unemployment is, is low, lots of jobs available. Is that your read of it? Yeah, I definitely think that it's a worker's market. We're seeing businesses in every industry need really good workers from tech to manufacturing to consumer product goods. So I would totally agree with you. Yeah, and I get maybe there's a perception sometimes out there that yeah, there's lots of jobs available out there, but they're not really good paying jobs. They're more like low level service service jobs or entry level jobs. Would you say that as someone in the HR world, are there a lot really good paying jobs available out there? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think on a whole, there are some really great paying jobs out there. I don't have insight into the entire uh, market. Yeah. But I do think I do think that in general, if you're an employee that has a specific uh, set of strengths and you're very likely to find yourself able to get a new job these days. But I know that it can be hard for those looking for jobs. And one of those reasons is that often companies aren't very transparent with pace. So you're often firing off resumes into the abyss without little information from the other side. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about that pay transparency issue right now. So for most people, they're out there, they're on, they're in the market, they're looking for a new job. Like when you take a look at want ads these days, do the jobs typically list what the starting salary is or not? I think often not. And, you know, in your intro to this segment, you said we're going to talk about, you know, knowing the salary of the job before you apply, which... When you say it, for me, it sounds like an absolute no-brainer, and it really surprises me that a lot of businesses actually don't do that. There's so many benefits for them and for the candidates, and I, you know, I think it is really interesting that more companies aren't. When we do recruitment with our clients at A Modern Way to Work, we use an inbound-only strategy, meaning we don't go out and you know, bug people on LinkedIn, and one of our main requirements is that we always post a narrowly defined salary on every job posting. And the result of that is we're not losing candidates at the end of the negotiation phase, which a lot of a lot of people really struggle with. Yeah, and do you hear that from people? Like maybe people will see a job description online and think like, "Oh, wow, this is this looks like a, a great opportunity, a dream job." Go through all the the application process, maybe go through an interview. Then it's time to talk turkey on the money, and it's like they offer you a really low salary. Yeah, we hear that all the time. And so one of the biggest benefits to actually posting a narrowly defined salary for companies is it saves you a ton of time. So if you do have your salary posted on your posting, let's say it's 80 to 85, and you have someone in the market who isn't going to go work for less than 100, you, you're, they're not applying. So you're yeah. saving time up front, filtering through resumes, you're not interviewing candidates that aren't going to take your offer at the end. Um, and you're, so you're repelling as many people as you're attracting, but they're, they're more likely to accept your offer at the end because they know what they're applying for. Right, right. So you're not wasting time like on both sides. So it's like the employer is not wasting their time interviewing someone who's not going to take the job anyway. Right. And, exactly. and you're not, wa- you're not wasting your time applying for a job that you're, you're not, you're exactly. not going to take. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I, yeah, and I think one go of ahead. the things like co- companies often have fear in, in, you know, posting salaries, which I find really interesting. And the number one reason that we find when we peel away the layers of what people's fear is around posting the salary is often they have someone internally who's being underpaid. And they realize that by, po- they realize that by posting the salary 
on their job posting, they're going to need to either bump someone's pay up internally or maybe have a conversation with someone who thinks they should be getting more but maybe doesn't deserve it. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, I can I can certainly see that. Speaking to Amanda Hudson, her company is A Modern Way to Work. It's an HR consultancy company. Like, if you take a look at this issue around wage transparency, Amanda, like, can you tell me what's going on in New York City? They actually brought in some regulations on this, right? Yeah, I think they're coming in May 15th. So okay. New York is one of two states in the U.S. who's introduced legislation that is basically saying companies in good faith need to post their salaries on their job postings. I'm not the biggest fan of legislating things into being. I know that they're trying to solve a pay equity issue through that. I think often companies, you know, find workarounds and rather than legislating, you know, and forcing people to do that, really explaining them to them the benefits of doing that. I think when companies do start recruiting by posting their salaries, so many benefits happen. You, know, you, get, you get a leg up on this war on talent. So if you're a company who's struggling to find workers and you're not posting your salaries or your hourly rates, like that's one quick way to instantly get a leg up over your competition. As I shared, it makes negotiation easier. And that legislation in New York, and I think there's you know, some being talked about maybe in BC, nothing, nothing is really in place yet. Um, it's really there to, to bridge that pay equity gap. And one of the, the pros of posting your salary on, on your job posting is that you're determining the value of the job to the company and not the value of the person who you end up that you're going to hire. So most companies that aren't actually quite clear on what the job is in the first place, and then they go, well, we'll see what we can get in the market. And then they make their decisions based on the candidate. And that's right. where you see the, the pay gap you know, and the bias potentially creep in. And so if you're a company who really cares about equity, by determining the value of the job before you ever know who you're going to hire, you start to really get around some of that, some of that pay equity right. uh, issue. What about if the salary is negotiable? And I could sort of understand an employer doesn't want to show the cards in their hands, right? I mean, you're going to get into some hardball negotiations. How much are you going to pay me? What are my benefits? Let, let's talk turkey now. You know, if they if the company is willing to put their cards on the table up front, does that take away some of their negotiating leverage with an em- employee? I think that a question that question sort of assumes most companies are trying to get talented people for the least amount of money they can pay them, and there are definitely some companies out there that do try to do that. Um, For most of the businesses we work with, we ask them, you know, if someone came in the perfect candidate to fill this role and they did all of these outcomes that you've asked them to do, what is that job worth to you? And they'll generally have an idea and will say, what's your upper range that you're willing to pay? Put that on your posting. Don't settle for a candidate you don't think is worth that. Um, And they have tremendous success in getting really, really good talent. Okay. Interesting issue. We're following it closely. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.